This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. What a beautiful audience you are all over the world. The ever-expanding numbers blow my mind. Thank you. And I want to thank the Patreons and everybody who writes in. Keep your emails coming. One of my favorite guests is returning. She's always so gracious and generous. She's an, an attorney extraordinaire. She's also an animal rights activist and advocate. She's a vegan, lives a vegan lifestyle. She's been on TV a lot with an incredible clarity and proponent of social justice, women's rights. And she's just a great person. She's also written books. Let's cut to the chase. Welcome back, Miss Lisa Bloom. Thank you, Paul. That's a very kind introduction. I had to like try to rush it in. I usually am pretty laid back, but I felt like I was kind of <laughs> I was rushing my lines. Uh, first question, too, totally off the thing. Did you go to Burning Man this year? I know you guys used to always go. Ah, uh, I did not, but it was only by about a five to four vote that I decided not to go in my brain. So uh, my son went, my adult son, and he said it was amazing. And uh, I happened to be in the Reno airport, which is the place where people come and go for Burning Man, which is about three hours drive from there, both as people were arriving and as people were leaving. I just happened to be there for other reasons. And I, all the burners were there and I talked to them and they're in their goofy costumes. And when they were leaving, you know, dusty shoes and uh you know, exhausted faces and, and I was very jealous. So next year for sure. This year I just felt like it was a little too soon with COVID for me to be in the big crowd. I wasn't feeling it. So next year for sure. Probably a wise move. You guys invited me too. Remember, I was gonna end up in the Winnebago with your husband because we're both were like out in the sand. No, I'm <laughs> you <laughs> yes. Uh we have gone six times and we love it. My husband likes to have the RV. I'm more of a, a tent camping kind of person. But yeah, you can be in the RV with him. I'll I'll sleep in a tent. Superior species <laughs> will be inside huddled. But <laughs> <laughs> what is so great about it? Everybody who goes loves it. They become devotees. But it, talking about it, can you capture why getting out in the desert with storms and heat and all the crazy costumes it doesn't sound fun. It's the weirdest thing. Everyone loves it. And I said, tell me about it. And as they're telling me, it's like, I get less and less enthused. <laughs> so, you know, I like to say that the best part of being at Burning Man is you don't have to explain Burning Man to anyone. So the best part is the community, the sense of love and kindness and all these just goofy people who've come together to create this temporary pop-up community where nothing is purchased or sold. There's no advertising. You know, we spend our lives being bombarded with ads and people trying to sell us things and social media trying to get our attention. And there, you know, there's you're offline and nobody's trying to sell you anything. You're not buying anything. You're just part of this community where there's a lot of art and music and workshops and humor. And yeah, you know, it's dusty and hot, but you know, so what? I mean, we're not made out of paper, <laughs> right? I mean, I feel like I feel like we've all gotten a bit soft, honestly, when I people see people recoil at a fly 
or you know i'm like come on what what has happened to us as a species we can't stand a little heat or a little cold or a few bugs or you know some dirt come on you sound like wim hoff because he talks about that and it's good for us to have different climates i mean my friends are all gonna laugh when they listen i've stayed in the vineyard till october where it was in the 40s this week because i'm a i'm a perfect weather seeker <laughs> I'm soft. I'd be one of the first wave that dies out when the apocalypse comes. Well, yes, and and you know, I know we're gonna we're gonna talk about my my backpacking and and that that's part of it though is it's I mean I I can get soft like anybody else, but I don't like it. I don't want to avoid things because it might be cold. So I I live primarily in Los Angeles where it's usually sunny and warm and dry, and you know people in LA freak out when it rains. I mean freak out. You know, we get a half an inch of rain and it's storm watch 2022 team coverage. Don't go outside. There's liquid falling from the sky. And it's like, come on, people. <laughs> this is ridiculous. It's so true. I used to work out there as a film producer and once it never rains. But one day it was just raining. It wasn't like a big storm, but it was raining. And the assistant called and said, the meeting's canceled because it's raining. <laughs> and I said, oh, I was the meeting going to be outside? I had no idea. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's L.A. <laughs> they cancel, and the, they don't know how to drive on the freeway. They think when it's raining, you speed up and dart between lanes. Right. <laughs> right. Yes, that is. And nobody has an umbrella or a raincoat. They don't even know what it is. No. That's, that's funny. It's true about that. I want to ask just a couple questions because one thing I wanted wondered, because we have a lot of young listeners and because they write in, and what allowed you to succeed in a system that has sort of structural barriers to make it harder for you to succeed? Not impossible, because obviously this will we might even talk about Iran, but it is harder, and yet you have thrived. And I've also seen you take criticism uh, in the media or wherever that a man would never take. So how are you able to overcome that and still thrive? Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Listen, I mean, I chose to become an attorney. I chose to become a litigator, which most attorneys are not. And then I chose to fight for victims of abuse, discrimination, and harassment. And I know, you know, I walked into this with my eyes wide open. I know that when I accuse billionaires of sexually assaulting my client, they're not just going to roll over. They're going to come at me. They're going to come at her. They're going to do everything they can. They're going to run negative PR campaigns on me. They're going to sue me. All of these things have happened and, and happened to me constantly. And, you know, I, it's like you, you either got to be in this or not. You know, this what I do is not not everybody's cut out for it, but, but I did, I'm doing it because I, I can, and I think it's important. And there's not that many attorneys who do this work and who do it well. I mean, I also always want to say I have a great team who works with me and all my cases, really strong attorneys and paralegals and assistants, and they do a lot too. But, um, you just have to be tough, you know? I mean, and that's, it's kind of seems to be the theme of our conversation today, right? You know, and, and then the way to get tough is you have to do hard things. And this is something I talk to my clients about. I talk to young people about we can do hard things and you should do hard things. You should not shy away from doing hard things. I mean, in, in a sense, it's natural for us to want to avoid it. But 
you know, if you need to have a hard conversation with someone, schedule it, plan what you're going to say and do it right. If you want to run 10 miles, you're going to start out by running a quarter mile and then a half a mile and then three quarter and then a mile and you're going to build up to it. Right. So it's just like that with anything. If you're going to, if you're going to stand up against very powerful people, you know, there's nothing to do except just start doing it and give it your best. And then realize when bad things happen, you can get up again the next day, brush yourself off and keep going. And that's what I've done. I mean, at this point, so many people are always threatening to come at me and sue me. And I say, you know, run a negative PR campaign. I say, you know, give it your best shot. <laughs> you know, everybody's already done this and I'm still here. I'm still swinging. I'm still fighting for my clients and still winning cases every day. So, uh, you know, go ahead, take your best shot. It doesn't seem, it doesn't, hasn't knocked me down yet. You should have a list of like here. These are your top 10 PR companies that have tried. You might want to call them. They already have a lot of stuff on file. Save yourself a little money. Where does that inner strength come from? Or do you even know, is it a mystery? Are we born with that? Uh, no, I think we have to cultivate it, honestly. And I, I do very um, consciously cultivate it by, you know, eating a very healthy plant-based diet, exercising a lot, keeping the stress down by talking to my friends. And I have wonderful friends to blow off steam with. You know, I have wonderful dogs who I have one in particular, the empathic dog who will come up to me and put her head on my my lap anytime I'm having a hard day. Like she just knows, right? I mean, you kind of learn to marshal all your resources so that you can keep going. What could you feel in your body when you shift to plant-based diet? We've done a lot of shows on this. What did you feel? Well, you know, I feel very healthy and clean, I would say. I mean, I'm 61 years old and I climb mountains and I, you know, I do a lot physically and I like to be able to do all of these things. I don't want to have to take pharmaceuticals and I don't take any currently. Obviously, if I had to for some kind of illness or something, I would, but I generally try to avoid it. Um, and so what did I feel? I felt very healthy and strong and alive. And that's still how I feel. You know, I was vegetarian for many years before I went vegan. So all I had to do was give up um, dairy and cheese, you know, cheese, eggs. But that stuff is so unhealthy anyway. So giving that up, I, you know, as soon as it was like a weeks in, I thought, oh, why did I ever eat that stuff? It's, you know, immediately your palate changes and that stuff seems gross to you. It's interesting too. And I've heard people speak that way when they got completely sober or quit cigarettes or you name it, the corporate world. Like, how did I ever do that? It's like they broke out of a trance. And a lot of stuff is habit, even good or bad. It's habits, brain patterns. It's neuroplasticity. You break that, you're free. And then you can at least choose consciously. It's true. And look, it's hard. It's hard for humans to change habits. It's hard for me. It's hard for anybody. But if you just do it incrementally, little bit by little bit, you, you can get there. And that's, you know, with being vegan, a lot of people go vegan-ish. Maybe they'll go a couple days a week vegan or start with meatless Mondays, or they do VB6, which is vegan before 6 p.m. and then eat whatever you want for dinner. You know, you take baby steps and don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Just, you know, do what you can. Any, anytime you're eating plant-based, whole food plant-based, not because you can have vegan junk food, but you don't want that, right? You want, you want healthy, you want to have a lot of green vegetables, you want whole grains, right? And that stuff is so much better for you and for the planet and for the animals. You're going to feel good and also learn how to make a couple of things. 
Um, it's, it's great if you can cook stuff at home. A lot of people, I mean, I'm a pretty good vegan cook and people will come over and say, well, if I could eat like this all the time, I would go vegan. I'm like, well, you can. I don't have any special magic. You are dropping some wisdom bombs. I'm going to make a note. I'm going to call my ET overlords when they install the Supreme Leader. I want to put your name in. <laughs> okay. I Yes, I, I accept. I accept the nomination. You, Marianne Williamson, Lynn Twist. We're just going to have a council oh. of women. Oh, I'm honored to be in that group. I'll, I'll be happily this. I'll be happy to serve. I'll fetch the vegetables. <laughs> Thank you. On a on a deeper note, we're talking about women's rights. I thought of you, and of course, because you're one of the premier advocates. What do you think of the mind blowing courage of those women in Iran standing up to that horrible theocracy? It is mind blowing. I have nothing but intense admiration for them. You know, when I think about their courage, you know, this is all about the young woman who didn't wear a headscarf and was arrested and ended up dying in police custody. And those who are protesting in her name face the same possible outcome, right? So, I mean, listen, I've been to many, many protests in the US, but I never feared that I could be dead as a result, right? These women in Iran know that by going out into the streets and taking off their headscarves and cutting their hair and speaking out against the government, they could potentially be killed. It's a very real possibility. And yet they are doing it anyway. I mean, it is just amazing and God bless. And I hope they really do provoke some change finally for women in Iran. It's so long overdue. And there are people here who are also fundamental in their religious beliefs who are trying to take your rights away and the rights of millions of women. What happened? Or really, what did you feel? Were you horrified with this Roe versus Wade nonsense? I mean, it seems like in a lot of ways, there's a large part of America that's really trying to take us back and you can't go back in life. You know, it was shocking. I obviously knew it was coming because the decision had been leaked a few months earlier, and I figured that was probably it. But I guess there was a small part of me that was hoping maybe they would change their mind from the draft decision. The main thing I felt was sadness, sadness for the girls and women who are in areas where they, you know, they can't travel. Like wealthy women can travel to another state or another country and get an abortion. That's always been the case. And adults can probably find a way in many cases. But if you're a 15-year-old girl, you can't even, how are you going to go away overnight to go, you know, hundreds of miles away somewhere? How are you going to explain that to your parents? You know, maybe you don't want your parents to know. I, if When I was 15, if I had gotten pregnant, I wouldn't have wanted my parents to know. Like, we all have to remember what it was like to be young and to, you know, to face these kinds of choices. So I think... I mean, I know that girls are going to die. Women are going to die from back alley abortions like they did before Roe. And it's just heartbreaking. I, I am somewhat encouraged by the voters in Kansas voting to keep abortion rights in their constitution, even though that is an overwhelmingly Republican state. You know, I think most Republicans do believe that women should have the right to choose, just like most Democrats do. Um, and I also think the Supreme Court over, they went so far so fast that now they're facing a backlash. And I just hope everybody gets out and votes, bring bring five people to vote in the midterm elections, 
you know, let your voice be heard. This is so important, and especially women and people who believe in women's rights. It is so important to vote for pro-choice candidates to prevent them from turning back the clock. And let's not forget that you know some of the some of the pro-life people are saying uh, we're going to let it case by case, state by state decision making. But you know, Mitch McConnell and others are saying we're going to we want a national law banning abortion nationwide. And there are people calling for women to be tried for murder if they have an abortion. So, I mean, these are really extremists. And I, you know, most Americans, I am heartened that most Americans do not want our country to go in that direction, but we have to make our voices heard. I agree. And it sounds straight out of the handmaid's tale. Yes. I don't understand it. Why is the patriarchy so threatened by equality? Honestly, sounds like, like, what are you, Forrest Gump with that question? But it is, what's so threatening about equality? Well, people don't give up power easily without a fight. And it's the same with white supremacy or, you know, any group that's had power for a long time, I think, convinces themselves that, uh, you know, let's take the case of white supremacy, white people thinking, well, we're, you know, we're better and smarter because for all these years, you know, we've kept the black people and people of color down and we've convinced ourselves that we're better. And so, you know, I mean, it's this kind of crazy circular racist method of thinking. And with patriarchy, I, you know, men don't want to give up power. They don't want women to take their jobs. They don't want to, it's, you know, have to have equality at home. Obviously not the good men. We have a saying in the women's movement, a man of quality is not threatened by a woman of equality. <laughs> so that's you, a man of quality, right? Um, and, you know, I, I was never interested in men who were threatened by strong women. And I guess they weren't interested in me either. So I never really I never really had that experience. I always dated men. And now my wonderful husband of 14 years, I've been with men who, who like to have a partner who's strong, who can take care of business, who's smart, just like I like that in my partner, right? I don't want somebody who's a marshmallow. Um, so... Yeah, well, but we need men like you talking to other men, sticking up for us, right? I mean, I think that's what that's what makes the change. Thank you. I get a lot of notes that say we need you're an ally. Thank you on on a lot of issues, and that's where I've tried to steer the show, and my and more importantly, the way I live and live it. And also, I'm invited because of my white tall guy patriarchy card. I get invited into all these places, the VIP pass. But I will speak truth to power in those situations, too. I won't scream it because it's not important. But it's amazing the influence you can have if you speak up. And then that gives other men who were thinking the same thing but maybe didn't speak up first to go, you know, he's right or why not? And it's we've had a lot of interesting conversations through the years in places that I think had some influence. I know in some cases they did. And to me, that's powerful. Yes, and I will just say, I made the decision long ago as a person with white skin, if I'm in a group and some other white person makes a racist comment, it is my obligation to speak up. And I think all of us, it's our obligation. You have to decide in advance because when you're in the moment, it's so awkward and uncomfortable. Let's say it's my host who's invited me somewhere, who's been very nice to me. And all of a sudden something horrible comes out of his mouth. You know, you feel like, oh, well, it would be so rude. No, you must decide in advance. And then what I say is, oh, wait a second. I'm sorry. You know, what I just thought, I think what I just heard you say was, and like, I always repeat it to make sure I had it right before I, <laughs> and they say, yeah, that is what I said. Oh, okay. 
well, listen, you know, that, that really concerns me. I really don't agree. And like, I try to engage them, like you said, try to stay calm, but we must, we must uh, speak out and never just let it go by. Is getting out in nature your way of balancing what you do in the real world? Is that your healing balm? Uh, absolutely. A hundred percent. I've always been a huge outdoorsy nature kind of person. I don't like being inside at all within four walls. I, I don't know who came up with this idea that we're all supposed to be in boxes most of the time, but I know that, uh, I read a book about a native American woman, a Comanche woman, uh, and she just, whenever she was indoors, she just felt like she was shriveling. And that, that's kind of how I feel. I like to be outside. I like the expansiveness fresh air, the plants, the animals. It's always been my thing and still is. Will you talk a little bit about your hiking adventures that I've been following along? And honestly, I'm in awe of both the pictures you take and also where you're going and how you're doing it. Well, thank you. Sure. I'll talk your ear off about it because it's my favorite thing. So uh, I've always been entranced by the long trails in the U.S., which are from west to east, the Pacific Crest Trail on the west, the Continental Divide Trail going down the middle, and then the Appalachian Trail on the east coast. And the Pacific Crest Trail is the one that has most enamored me because I live on the west coast and uh, I've always kind of known it was there. I've always been interested. People might know the the Cheryl Strayed book, Wild, that was made into a film with Reese Witherspoon a few years ago. That was good, but it wasn't a real PCT book and film because that was, she. first of all, she did less than half the trail. And then she, it was kind of about her own struggles, which was a great, great book and movie, but there's a lot better ones that are just about the PCT documentaries and books. And I think I've read all of them and seen all of them. And, and during the pandemic, I just decided, you know, I want to start doing it. So it's, it's, for those who don't know, the PCT is a 2,600 mile trail that goes from the Mexico border to the Canada border through California, Oregon, and Washington, up and down, you know, all the highest mountains, just up and down, up and down, up and down all day long. It's the Pacific crest trail because you crest the mountains. It's not the Pacific Coast Trail, which sometimes people say incorrectly. So um, so I have done now about a quarter of the trail, and I think 680 something miles in, in, in segments. I don't, it, people who do it straight through. So every year there's a bunch of people who do it straight through from the Mexico border to the Canada border. It takes them about five to six months I don't have a life where I can just disappear for five to six months. So honestly, I would like to, I, it really calls to me, but, uh, you know, I have a law firm and cases and family. And, um, so I can't, so I started doing, you know, four days, four to eight day trips. And I have done most of Southern California and a good chunk of the high Sierras, which is um, sort of the central California part and a little bit up here by Lake Tahoe. So um, the season I think is over. I don't know, it's possible I get one more trip in, but probably the season is over. But I was doing about a week per month over the last six months and posted on Instagram for those who are interested at Lisa Bloom-esque, some of my pictures and escapades. And it's just an incredible experience. How did you overcome the basic primal fears of doing, like we said, what's hard, but also being out there? I would be less afraid of mountain lions, bears, snakes, than I would be of other weird people. 
So, you know, on the trail, those of us who are out there, we often joke about people's fears because this is the number one thing we hear from people, fear. Aren't you scared? Aren't you scared, 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 scared? And um, so I always say, okay, well, let's break this down. Yes. What is the biggest concern? Yes. Other humans, other humans are dangerous. That's the worst fear. It's not animals or snakes or so if you are, let's say a rapist, why are you going to hike, you know, 15 miles up a very difficult mountain to go attack someone when you could just go to a parking lot in the city and, you know, there's lots of options for you. Right. And that's, that's actually where a lot of assaults on women happen. I have represented a woman raped in a parking lot one time. And so I learned the statistic. Parking lots are very dangerous for women. But most of us, when we're walking through a parking lot, we're not gripped by fear. For some reason, when we're out in nature, we are afraid. And I think people are afraid because they're just not used to it. They're not comfortable with it. There's really so much less to fear. You know, the my biggest concerns, well, and I also just want to say the people on the trail are amazing. It's like Burning Man. Everybody's super friendly, helpful. Um, so, you know, whatever you need, people are there to help you. People want to make conversation. Uh, and sometimes we have very deep conversations with total strangers out there. So there's something about being out in the wilderness and having been walking all day with a big weight on your back uh, that may, opens people up. <laughs> And they they want to talk, and and I like to talk to strangers, so so I do. My biggest concerns are twisting an ankle because that would be a problem, and then I'd have to hobble out probably for many miles on a twisted ankle, which happens to people. Um, a mouse chewing through my tent to eat my food, which has happened to people. Uh, so I have a mouse-proof thing for the food and a bear canister when I'm in bear country, um, and. Um, you know, not having enough water. Uh, and so in Southern California, water is very scarce because of climate change and our super drought. So you want to carry enough water so that you have enough, but not carry too much because water is very heavy. So you have to know all the water. So those are like the real, I wouldn't say fears, but concerns. But I don't have any fear about strapping on a backpack and going out alone out into the wilderness and for days and days and sleeping out there. I'm not, I'm not afraid at all. It sounds like no different than preparing for a big case. You're prepared. Yes, it is. I often say backpacking is a sport of preparation. And I do a lot of preparation because when you do long distance, long distance backpacking, um, you know, you don't need a lot. So what people do when they're beginners is they go to a shop like REI and they buy every little gizmo and knickknack and then they and they buy a giant pack and they throw it all in there because God forbid, you know, they wouldn't have like five pairs of mittens or something. So you actually learn very quickly doing long distance backpacking that it's the opposite. It's very minimalist. You only want what's absolutely essential and you want to keep your pack as light as possible so that it's much more fun to climb up mountains that I do about 20 miles a day. And it's a lot more fun when I don't have a big heavy pack, right? So it's preparation. I lay everything out. I go over it, my food and, and everything. And once you're super, yes, like preparing for a case. Once I'm super prepared, prepared and I've checked everything two or three times, then I feel great. Then I'm ready to go. Then it's showtime. Let's do it. What does it feel like after a couple of days of that kind of disconnection and realigning in the natural world and looking at stars, hopefully without any light pollution, what happens to your spirit and does your soul kind of expand and you get more in touch with who and what you really are? 
Oh, Paul. So you know the old John Denver song, Rocky Mountain High. <laughs> it really is a high. Um, it's, you know, first of all, you know, 20 miles a day with the heavy pack going up and down big mountains, there's this incredible endorphin rush. And sometimes I think, you know, can I do it? Can I, especially in the afternoon when I get tired in the morning, I'm full of energy. I feel amazing. I wake up feeling great, ready to go start at maybe 6am or 630. By the afternoon after lunch, like two, three, you know, I'm tired. And I think, can I really do another five miles? Okay, just do it one mile at a time, one mile, and then another mile, another mile. And then when I make it to my destination, I feel so amazing that I was able to do this. And I just sit there and look out at the world and feel very energized and alive. I never feel more alive than when I'm out in nature backpacking. It's like, this is what we were meant to do. We were meant to walk and walk long distances if, if you can. Uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm home and I'm working, I work out like one to two hours a day and then the rest of the day I'm sitting. But I wasn't, I think it's the opposite of what I was meant. I was meant to be walking all day and just sitting a little bit, right? Uh, you know, walking is not difficult. You just keep doing it. You just keep moving, right? There's something about walking. It's very zen and meditative. It has a rhythm. Um, and yes, you really get a chance to, to think about your life. Crazy, weird thoughts pop up. Um, you come around a turn and there's an amazing vista. I mean, the Pacific Crest Trail is beautiful. And you just never know what lies ahead. You just never know what you're going to see. So you know, there's big surprises. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's just a really exuberant, exhilarating experience. Wow. You say it well. And I thought you must never, you must never be more alive than then. I wonder, I know you have the big life and the team and all this, all this going on married, but I wonder if you ever spent 90 days out there undeterred, if you'd be able to come back into this world, you might not want to. Yeah, well, the people who do, and next summer, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to do at least at least four to six weeks um, out there. The people who do the whole trail, yes, they at the end, they're always very sad that, you know, now I have to go back to real life. And, you know, people take breaks, of course, they'll do maybe six or seven days, and then they take, we say, take, um, taking a zero, which means zero miles that day, you take a break in a town, for example. And, you know, it's great to be in a town and take a break and have a real meal in a restaurant and a real bed, but people can't wait to get back on the trail. And that's how I felt the times that I have taken a zero on my longer trips is like, you know, why am I here in this hotel? I'd rather be outside. I'd rather be sleeping in my tent. I love sleeping in my tent. I mean, I never sleep better than in my tent. Um, yeah, so it's hard for people to come back to. I wouldn't say real life because being on the trail is real life, but come back to this other life that we've all decided has to be lived this way in boxes. Listening to you, I feel like I would rather be out there alone. No offense to the many I love. And you would probably be a blast to walk with and so many other people and it would be deep, but it feels like a thing I would want to just be in the silence. It is nice to do it solo. And it's also, I, I have had friends come a couple of times, but even so you go at your own pace and nobody's ever gonna be exactly the same pace as you. So even 
even when if I go with a friend, we you know we meet up at night at, at a site that we decide in advance, but still during the day we're mostly alone so that everybody can go at their own pace. I don't want somebody to have to rush on my account or wait a lot for me. You know, I want you kind of everybody has their own pace. So yes, and also, you know, I, I kind of challenge people. Uh, if you can't be alone with yourself for even, let's say, a couple of hours on a day hike, why is that? You know, think about that. You should be able to. Um, and I sometimes listen to podcasts like yours or music or audiobooks, but then I also turn it off and I just have quiet too. I'd say it's about half and half. Has it brought you closer to, I would say, a higher power or whatever you want to call it? Words are so basically inadequate. <laughs> yes, I would say so. I, I mean, there is obviously so much out there that is greater than us, and we may not understand it. And, you know, there's something about these big – so let me talk about the Sierras, which is are my favorite mountains. Um, it's where Mount Whitney in the south, and then there's the John Muir Trail, which people have heard of, and up to Yosemite through um, Sequoia National Park, Kings National Park, Yosemite National Park. So spectacularly beautiful, and these giant granite boulders and beautiful emerald lakes and aqua clear lakes. And you just have to be awestruck and consider, you know, this world that we have and this planet that we have. And I, I do feel closer to a higher power. I also feel a real sense of urgency about protecting it, protecting Mother Earth, protecting our planet, especially because I see the creeks that are dried up, you know, and the trees that are getting eaten by bark beetles and turning brown and the bark beetles are a function of climate change. And of course, the wildfires and the giant burn scars I have, I've had to cut short several trips because of wildfires that are more severe because of climate change. So it just makes me feel a very strong sense of urgency about, about fighting climate change. Well, you were mind reading today because three times you've said something I was thinking about. So I think you're closer to your <laughs> amazing Kreskin days too. There's something about being in the woods or in a cabin <laughs> by a lake. I was going to say, because I've had a, well, all the top scientists, most of them on, a lot of them several times. They just did a show with uh, the great Bill McGuire, who's put out a book called Hot House Earth. That show came out recently. Yeah, I'll send you that one. But so I'm I'm both, I guess I would say I'm sadly inundated with all the facts of this. And I, I also talk to them off the record, offline. We communicate. We send each other tropes or facts. Uh, I would not recommend this at home because it's extremely depressing. Uh, if we don't take radical action, we are headed towards places we don't know, but it won't be a good. And I see Lake Mead is running dry. The rivers in Europe are running dry. The Colorado's running dry. We can't live without water. We can't grow food. Record heat waves. Uh, Ian, the hurricane just went from a one to a five in about 10 minutes. And the remnants went from the Gulf of Mexico. It went through Florida. And then it's it hits Charleston wreaked havoc there and then it was up here in the vineyard just what was left of it for three and a half days blowing 60 miles an hour and raining and and we had a drought and heat record heat this year here you're closer to it when you're hiking but you're also smart enough to know what's going on why won't we deal with this is change too hard i know there's a lot of systems set up to distract and lie the fossil fuel industry the the media junkies but to me, this is like the basic survival thing. You would think if we could get behind anything, it would be that 
we could go on living on the earth, their kids, grandkids, we could grow food. And if anything, we could go on if to keep arguing about stupid shit. <laughs> so I just read a book called Don't Even Think About It, Why the Human Brain is Not Wired to Understand Climate Change. And it really addresses this question. Our, our psychology is not really built to handle big, giant, huge, slow moving problems. And it's not even moving that slowly anymore, but it's, you know, we are very short term thinkers. When you add to that, that our political system is, you know, people are, are elected for four years generally, you know, that's very short term. There's no politician who wants to tell people, okay, I'm going to impose some significant sacrifices on everyone now so that the world is better in 30 years. That person's going to lose the next election, right? So we have to educate ourselves on this problem, this unique, horrendous, giant problem that you know people have been screaming about for years and years and we've all had our heads in the sand. And now it is here, it's upon us. These extreme weather events are just emblematic. You know, what we don't see, we feel the extreme weather when it happens to us, but we don't see the species going extinct every day, the creeks drying up, the soil being so dry, the ocean acidifying, the coral reefs all becoming bleached. That is so heartbreaking. And what we're doing to the oceans is so horrendous. And, you know, most of us don't see it because we don't go down underneath the ocean and look at, you know, things unless you watch you know, documentaries about it. So, you know, change is hard for humans, as we've talked about, people changing their habits. People don't want to have radical change, and that's what we need. We are making some changes, and that's good. I'm very proud of my state, California, which is really a leader in climate change, phasing out fossil fuels, uh, fossil fuel cars, for example, by 2035, which is really not fast enough, but it's faster than anybody else is doing. You know, I've driven an all electric car for 12 years, I would never go back to a car that uses gas and that burns carbon. But you know, I take planes sometimes that's bad. So it's not so much about our personal choices as about uh, collectively what we're all going to do, right. And we should all make good personal choices, you know, recycling, don't eat animals, etc. But what we really need is massive societal changes and we have to get china and india on board too and that's very difficult they are doing some things but not nearly enough and i don't know i guess people have to educate themselves how big and and serious this problem is i you know my heart breaks when i think about my children and god willing one day grandchildren and what their lives are going to be like in this harsh new world you know the gulf coast for example you know, Ian, that's just going to keep happening and it's just going to get worse. And we don't talk about that enough. We talk about these storms as if it's a one-off and very few people talk about it in the context of climate change, which I just think is journalistic malpractice. Climate change should be in every headline, should be at the top of every story about this extreme weather. That's what's causing it. That's what's exacerbating it. I also worry that young people we'll start to think, well, this is just normal. These extreme storms and droughts and it's not normal. <laughs> it's happening because of climate change. But I will say also, I think young people are more aware. They're out in the streets more about this. And so that's what we need more of that. You nailed that because I've talked to them as young as 10 and they know and they're all over it. And 
sadly, many young people think we're doomed, but they don't know what to do, but they just feel like we're going over a cliff that they can understand that you can't have infinite, finite, rapid growth on a small, finite planet. Right. Well, listen, I feel climate despair too. But we have to rein that in and active, uh, what's the phrase? Um, activism is the antidote to despair. We have to all be activists on this. We have to be out in the streets. We have to especially support candidates who understand climate change and who want to act on climate change and vote out those who do not vote out those who are in the, you know, thrall of fossil fuels. And I'm also just going to say, cause I have to always say the meat industry is meat and dairy are among the biggest contributors to climate change. And we have to talk about that, not to mention all the pollution of the soil and the water and the air that these industries cause and the intense cruelty to billions of sentient beings. But we have to address the meat industry aspect of climate change too, along with the fossil fuels. Boy, right on it. And I would recommend the movie Cowspiracy and Seaspiracy, two great, yes, heartbreakingly searing, but we can't afford climate doom. I, I keep saying whether I feel we're doomed or not has no effect on my actions because I have to still be kind. I have to because of who I am and what I believe and what I am. So I want to still do the show and have the people on and talk about what's uncomfortable and try and do the best I can. Al Gore once said to me a great phrase, though. He said, you're doing great, but we we can't just change the light bulbs. We have to change the laws. It has to be systemic. And and I would agree with that. And Michael Mann, who comes on a lot, the scientist, said we can't afford climate doom. Isn't he great? He said, because if we do climate doom, we are doomed. Right. It's self-fulfilling. And you know what? Even if we are doomed, let's go down swinging uh, for the benefit of our children and our grandchildren and our beautiful planet and all of the animals. You know, it's it's just we we have to keep trying. And even if we don't completely fix the problem, which we're not going to, we can still make progress on some aspects of it. So we can still save some species. We can still save some parts of our planet. We can still improve things. And we've got to do it. I mean, we, we, we have to keep trying. What do you do when you do feel hopeless or down or depressed? I know you're very sensitive for all the strength. How do you, how do you reboot? What do you do so you don't just end up in a dark room <laughs> watching Dancing with the Stars on a loop? Um, uh, what do I do? I mean, listen, you have to feel the feels. You have to talk to people about it, people who are close to you, people who understand. We're all human. And then you have to get up the next day and do what needs to be done. You know, whether it's give money to Extinction Rebellion or the Climate Emergency Fund or the Sierra Club or the League of Conservation Voters, who I like very much. Um, you know, give them a little bit of money. A dollar is a vote. If you can give them $20 or $100, you can also do phone banking, which I have done, uh, you know, because I have a big mouth. I don't care. I'll cold call anyone. So they have these great phone banking things where you can get to go for an hour and you're online connected with other people. And there's a little script you read and you, you know, talk to uh, staffers for your senator, your congressperson, let them know how you feel. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things going on all of the time. And I think when you, especially when you join with others to do something about climate, it is, it's a good feeling because you realize there's lots of people out there who feel the way you do. And, and when you join with them to make some change, um, that's going to make you feel better. 
I'm glad you mentioned Extinction Rebellion. We had the founder, Roger, on. He's, they're amazing. Yeah, they're brave. Aha. Uh-huh. Love them. They're, they're out in the streets, and that's great. Stirring shit up. And stirring up. You know what? And that's what we, we need all the parts. And people say to me, like, what's more important, you know, uh, lobbying Congress or being out in the streets or the artists or the endless. It's all important. It all is synergistically to, you know, works together. Uh, so all of it, whatever you are called to do, if you're an artist and you can make a poster or you can make a meme, I also think it's very important for people to post on their social media frequently that they think climate change is bad. It's a concern. They're concerned about it. You'd be surprised how much effect you have on the people who know you by your social media posts. We're all very persuaded by the people who are close to us. So Everybody can do that and just post about how you feel about it and how it's important to you and how you want to see change and you want to protect our mother earth, right? That, that makes a difference. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.